on the calendar a little, and 2017 is almost upon us. <laughs> I never thought we'd be that far uh, in this age, but here we are. We took a little departure from uh, faith, per se, on Pentecost and talked more about that day and the ramifications of it. Uh, I did get into James 4 a little bit where we were in the series on faith and on James, and I think I'll go back to that uh, and cover it at least briefly, even though we just recently went over it last Sunday. But uh, there's an awful lot here uh, in introducing what he has to say a little later in the chapter, so let's hit that again just a little bit in James 4. Uh, we need to take stock sometimes and understand why certain things are going on the way they are going on. And uh, James brings this up and says, Whence come wars and fightings among you? Uh, if there's lack of peace, if there's difficulties, if there are attitudes, uh, if, if we don't have peace among us, he says, where does this come from? Well, that's a fair and valid question, and we need to all ask ourselves, uh, if we're not at peace, why? And what can we do about it? Uh, it's a two-sided coin, of course. Uh, you can't always make peace just on your own, but you can do everything you can within your power to do your part. And that's what we need to do today, not focus on what somebody else might or might not be doing, but... What's my part? Because your salvation is something only you can deal with, and mine is something only I can deal with. We cannot deal with anyone else's. So we need to look at the beam in our eyes, not the mode in someone else's, and be sure that we're doing our part to be what we ought to be. Uh, that's our responsibility. So when he asks the questions... We need to self-examine, not somebody, not examine someone else. Then he begins to answer. Come they not, hence, even of your lusts that war in your members. Uh, they do not come from God. When there's war, when there's fighting, when there's strife, it does not come from God. Uh, it is caused by someone else. Now, he will enter into the fray when the time is right. When he was attacked by Satan and the demons, uh, he responded. He didn't cause that fight in the heavens. Satan and the demons did. But God answered it, and he took care of the problem. It isn't fully taken care of even yet, because God had allowed Satan a certain amount of time. And his time is almost up. He is going to be bound for a thousand years pretty shortly now and then loosed for a little while, one more time, at the end of the millennium, and then be bound up forevermore. So it's not that God is not in charge. Uh, God has allowed Satan to be the prince of the power of the air and the present ruler of this, na of this world. And uh, looking around at all the wars and fighting and strife and murder and mayhem that is going on, it's obvious that's not from God. It has to be from uh, an evil source. And Satan plays on human nature very, very strongly because human nature is full of lust, vanity, greed, jealousy, and envy and all of those carnal reactions. So when we see carnality, raw, 
and in our face or putting it in somebody else's face, we know that it's not coming from God. It's coming from Satan and human nature. So he says the basis of it is lust, whether it be lust for power or control or various physical lusts. Uh, there's there's some some desire for something inordinate, inordinate, something that we should not have, uh, in order to cause coveting and lust and those base human works, carnal works. You lust and you have not. So often the things that we think we want or wish we had, we don't get in any case. <laughs> Whether I mean, it's just the desire that's there often, but it isn't something that can be fulfilled or something that can be had. So it creates frustration and misery and uh, depression because we can't have what we want. He says, uh, you lust and have not, you kill and desire to have. People will do physical murder or they will do uh, character assassination, spiritual murder, uh, in order to get what they want uh, and cannot obtain. You fight in war, yet you have not because you ask not. Now, some people ask for what they, their lusts and their desires and their greed uh, want them to have, but they don't always get it. And they ask God sometimes for things that really they shouldn't have, because they're idolatrous. They're not things that God would approve them having. Uh, and he doesn't give them. He even said earlier in this book that God is the one who sends every good and perfect gift. Those come from above. But when we want things that aren't right and we war and fight among ourselves for them, uh, he says, you have not because you ask not. And then to that he adds, even if you do ask, the reason you don't get it is you, uh, because you ask amiss that you may consume it upon your lusts. So your greed, your vanity, your ego, uh, and all those things get in the way, and you're asking for something that God is simply not going to give because it's not according to His will and His way. So uh, sometimes we desire to have things we shouldn't have that aren't legal for us, and we get into trouble. And then it creates problems among ourselves. Then he says, you adulterers and adulteresses, we are to have our friendship with God. First uh, John tells us that our fellowship was with the Father and the Son. It isn't with the world. And that if we have friendship with the world, then that's enmity with God. Now, that can be on different levels. We can spend our time, our energy uh, with people of the world and make friends of them as, as just human friends. And that will get you nowhere spiritually, ultimately, because your human friends you might have are not seeking to obey God. If they are, it's not the true God. So worldly friends uh, doesn't work. But on a larger sense... Uh, we're friends with the world if we desire the things that the world desires. What are they after? More power, more money, more sex, more 
uh, intellect, more vanity, more pride, whatever it might be, that they're after, uh, if we're after those same things, whether we're going to dinner with somebody in the world is neither here nor there. We're making friends if we're, if we're buddying up to the world's way with its education systems, its entertainment systems, its fraudulent financial systems, whatever is out there in the world uh, that we desire and go after um, generally is not of God. So whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Of course, Israel did that continually by making allies and relationships and friends with the world rather than serving God. And he called that spiritual adultery and divorced Israel because of it. And now he's going to, Christ is going to remarry the church who hopefully are going to get it better than ancient Israel did. With the help of his spirit, uh, we will obey in ways that they were not able to or did not. Verse 5, do you think that the Scripture says in vain? Is the Scripture saying in vain? Does it matter? Is it important? The spirit that dwells in us lusts to envy. The Scripture says that of human nature. So it's not saying it in vain. There are all kinds of different types of envy. And we often envy what other people have or we think they have. And envy is not an emotion of God. Envy is an inordinate desire for something someone else has that we've decided we want. That is an ungodly desire. But he gives more grace. <clears throat> he offers something better than that. Wherefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So if we're proud, and we think we ought to have what others have, uh, that becomes envy, and it also became, becomes a matter of pride. Because where strife is, there is pride. If there's total humility and meekness uh, on both sides, strife cannot exist there. But where there is pride, strife exists. For God looks to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Humility, meekness, contriteness, lack of pride, and ego. There really is no excuse for any kind of pride on this earth. If there's any pride that could have been had, it was with the Father and the Son. Uh, two perfect beings. And yet the Father didn't even say, I'm proud of you, Son. He said, I'm well pleased. So if it goes beyond being pleased and becomes proud, then there's a problem there. So we need to submit to God's attitudes, as Matthew 5 shows us, what God's attitudes are. Meek, humble, peacemaking, uh, and so on. <coughs> Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So you resist, you resist vanity, pride, ego, and all those things. If you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, 
and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Double-minded means we try to maintain the desires of this earth, the desires of human flesh, and say we obey God at the same time. And he says you cannot serve the attitudes, the emotions of human nature and serve God at the same time. You have to get rid of the works of the flesh in order to serve God. Otherwise, we're double-minded. So he tells us to be afflicted and mourn and weep. Now, we'd like to be happy all the time, wouldn't we? Wouldn't we like to always be content and at peace and, and not have trials, trouble, difficulties, and temptations? Now, he tells us to be afflicted. He tells us to mourn and to cry, to weep. In other words, if we're going along with human nature and just happy-go-lucky, everything's okay, and God's on my side, I'm doing fine, uh, we're probably not growing. It's when we recognize our human nature and what it does to us and how it deceives us and frustrates us in our seeking of God that we mourn and we weep, and it's afflicting. Repentance and overcoming are not easy. They come through tears, through mourning, and affliction. So he says, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Now, joy is a fruit of the Spirit. And we should joy in the Spirit that we have such a goal and a purpose as the kingdom of God ahead of us. But we have to, at the same time, be afflicted and mourn and realize uh, how insidious and how violent and how negative our nature is. So it's a mixture. It's bittersweet in that sense of realizing what God says we can be and striving to be that, and yet at the same time resisting what we by nature are. We just are that. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Eternal, and He will lift you up. Now, he follows that thought with saying, Speak not evil one of another, brethren. Uh, When we speak evil of others, we are lifting ourselves up and saying, I'm better than you. And we're not better than anyone else. None of us is better than anybody else. He tells all seven of the churches to overcome. (laughs) So, nobody's perfect. Nobody's what they ought to be. We all have to grow and overcome. So, don't lift yourself up above your brother, but humble yourself before God and let him lift you up if he so desires. What did Christ say? If you get into the wedding supper, grab the lowest chair. Grab the last chair. If he wants to move you up, he'll move you up. But it's not something we do ourselves. That's presumption, and that's the same as witchcraft. Satan was presumptuous and tried to lift himself above God, he tried to become God's judge and condemn God and say, I'm better than you are. And God cast him down. So when we try to lift ourselves up, we are in a satanic attitude. When we presume to offices that God has not given us, we are in a satanic attitude. God set offices in the church, and those who try to take over those offices are following Satan the devil. 
they're not following God. God never ruled from the bottom up. When the bottom tried to overtake the throne of God, God cast it down. And He did it throughout the Bible as well. So we need to be very, very careful that we don't lift ourselves up. So don't speak evil one of another, brethren. He that speaks evil of his brother and condemns his brother speaks evil of the law and condemns the law. If you condemn a human being made in the image of God and put them down and raise yourself above them, then you're condemning God's law. Ultimately, you're condemning God because he didn't make us the judge. If you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. I had somebody tell me just recently I was going to go to hell. And Christ was going to tear me to pieces. Well, I'm glad God and Christ are my judge and not some human being. Can we do that? Can we make those judgments and those condemnations? Boy, that's scary. That is truly scary when we start putting each other down and uh, making a spiritual judgment on people. God says, do not do that, right here. If you judge or condemn the law, and someone who's trying to keep the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver, and it isn't you, and it isn't me. Troy, life and death are in the hands of Emmanuel, the Lord of hosts. And his father will follow through with what? He recommends. So who are we that condemn someone else? We're going way beyond our authority. We can't even judge ourselves, brethren. I, I condemn myself regularly, probably every day, for things that I think or do. But I can't make the eternal judgment on myself. I have to, I have to admit, confess my sins before God and forsake them. But he is the one who extends mercy and patience and gives the gift of eternal life. We can't, we can't give it and we can't take it away from ourselves, except that unless we decide not to obey God and trust him, uh, we're the only ones in that sense that can remove ourselves from him. He won't depart from us. So he says in verse 13, Wake up, go to now, you that say, today or tomorrow we will go into such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get game. How do you know that? <laughs> you don't know what the next year holds, do you? Whereas we know, or you know not, what shall be tomorrow. For what is your life? We're only heart, one heartbeat away from death. Any time. It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. You get a little fog on your windshield and you turn the defroster on and it just goes away pretty fast. And our life can be the same way. So we, we can't say what we're going to do. We may have big plans, but we never know. You could be in a car accident tomorrow, just that easy, and die right there. We don't know what tomorrow holds. So we better be thinking seriously is what he's saying. <clears throat> For that you ought to say, if God wills, we shall live and do this or that. We need to preface everything we think and say about future plans on if it be according to God's will. 
I'm planning to do such and such this next year. It's not wrong to plan ahead. It's not wrong to think ahead. Sometimes we need to do that. Uh, why did he say, look to the ant, you sluggard. Lay up in the summer for the winter. Lay up in hard times, I mean good times for hard times. Why did he tell Joseph to lay up seven years of food? Um, because God knew trouble was coming. But the, it's the attitude God's talking about. If we are vain and proud and think we're going to do such and such, we better back off. But we can make plans, whether it's business, family, whatever. But we better always have in mind if this be according to God's will, because we don't know what the future holds. You ought to say, if God wills that, we'll do this or that. But now you rejoice in your boastings. All such rejoicing is evil. We just don't know. So acknowledge that our life is in God's hands, and if we pray for safety and guidance and help, that He direct our steps, then we make plans and we put Him first in our lives, then those plans may work out. If we don't put Him first, <laughs> they may not work out. Therefore, to him that knows to do good and does it not, to him it is sin. So he's saying that all the things that we've been talking about here today are sin if we don't do them. So then in chapter 5 he says, Go to now, you rich men, weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. Just as hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom as it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And whether that be physical riches, or we judge ourselves to be spiritually rich as the Pharisees did themselves, uh, we better weep and howl. The moment we think we stand, we may fall. We, it's easy for us to condemn others and judge them and say, well, they're not spiritually right. But it's real easy for us to say, I'm spiritually right. I'm okay. Better be careful of that. We, we may or may not have any treasures in heaven. Uh, that's the real treasure. That's the only one that really counts. So he says, your riches are corrupted, whether they be physical or spiritual. And your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver is cankered, and the rust of them shall be a witness against you. And you shall eat your flesh as it were, and, and it shall eat your flesh as it were fire. You heap treasure together for the last days. So, we need to be careful. A certain amount of preparing is okay. But how do you know whether you'll be able to stay with that which you've prepared? Somebody might take it away from you. And the only real survival mechanism is our closeness to God and His protection. He even says of those who come as the uh, faithful remnant to rebuild the temple that uh, <laughs> they will come basically penniless. And he says, have wine and milk without, without money. So they will come here, barely get here, and they will have basically nothing but what's on their back. But God says he'll take care of them if they're faithful and he's able to stir them and they obey.
So it's not wrong to look ahead and do a certain amount of preparation, but don't lose sight of in all physical preparation that really God's protection is all that's going to matter. Behold the hire of the laborers who have reaped down your fields, which is of you kept back by fraud. Laborers worthy of his hire. You don't fraudulently hold back from the laborer. And they cry out. And the cries of them which have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of hosts. That's what it should be. The hosts are armies of heaven. So those who are mistreated, misused, abused, uh, God hears their cry. So those who have the fields and have workers need to be aware of those workers and treat them right. You've lived in pleasure on the earth and been wanton or godless. You've nourished your hearts as in a day of slaughter. You've condemned and killed the just, and he does not resist you. Now, he's... He's talking about church people who've killed church people. You remember Matthew 24, where Christ said that we'll betray one another to the death. People will be so selfish, so greedy, uh, so self-inclusive, that they will be willing to give others up to death in order to try to save their own lives. That's coming very soon in the church of God. Scary business. Verse 7, Be patient, therefore, brethren, to the coming of the eternal. <clears throat> Be patient until he comes. Now, I don't know about you. We're all different a little bit, but I've been waiting since about 1953, well over 60 years now, and I see some here with with gray hair that have been waiting probably as long as I have. And uh, some of their parents or grandparents were also waiting. Herbert Armstrong really didn't understand Scripture. He thought the 19-year time cycles were important, and maybe in some respects, in a general way, they were. But he expected Christ to be here in 1975, and it's only 41 years past that, about half a lifetime, <laughs> and he's not here yet. So he says, be patient to the coming of the eternal. Uh, we just can't say the day or the hour, and we, we couldn't even say the year back in the 70s, and we couldn't even say the decade. In fact, we even missed the century, didn't we? So uh, I know it's close now, but we've had to be patient, and the patience of many has waxed then. Many have just given up. Well, you know, we must have been wrong. No, the prophecies were right. The timing was wrong. And all those things that those prophecies say are going to happen. And now we have seen famine and pestilence, the sword, and spiritual captivity in the church on a spiritual level. We've gone through it. And it's not over yet, but it's getting close to being over except for those who go in the tribulation, they got another few years of it. And how many of them? Well, God says about a third of them will repent during that time, but two-thirds will not. <clears throat> so when he says be patient, he means it. Those that endure to the end, not just part way, but to the end. 
Behold, the husbandman waits for the precious fruit of the earth and has long patience for it until he received the early and latter rain. So, if you are a farmer, a rancher, and you're depending on rains and you're depending on crops to sustain you, uh, then you have to depend on rain. And God tells us the exact same is true spiritually. In Joel, where it's talking about the day of the Lord and the end of this age, he says that he will send the early and the latter rain. And we have to wait patiently until it's time for that. Be you also patient, says it again. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the eternal draws nigh. Well, when James wrote that, he expected Christ to return in his lifetime. It didn't happen. Uh, so, we who now are at the end of this age still need that kind of patience, knowing that the coming of the eternal is near now. And we have to wait for the early and latter rain. Uh, verse 9, Grudge not one against another, brethren, lest you be condemned. That's a pretty strong statement. If you bear grudges one against another, you're not willing to forgive any right, any wrongs, or whatever might have occurred, whether they were real or imagined. If you hold those and bear a grudge or an attitude against someone, you will be condemned. Didn't Christ say several times, if you forgive others, I'll forgive you, but if you do not forgive them, I will not forgive you? And yet we have people who justify grudges and attitudes toward others and say it's okay in their own mind, and yet God says if you do that, you'll be condemned. That's scary if you stop to think about it. We need to be very, very careful that we don't hold grudges or the past or uh, any attitude toward anyone else. God is their judge. We're not. Others can't judge us, and we can't judge them. We need to be very, very careful of that. Don't condemn anybody. Don't hold grudges. God is their judge. Just leave it alone. Behold, the judge stands before the, the door. Christ is the judge. I'm not, you're not, no one else is but him. And we can be thankful for that. Remember when David was going to be punished for some of his sins? And God gave him some choices. <laughs> I'll turn you over to the powers that be, or I'll turn you over to Satan, wasn't it? Or, or you can turn yourself over to me. And David says, I don't want anybody to judge me but you. I, said, I know you're angry at me. I know I'm in trouble. But don't turn me over to anybody else. I want you to judge me. And that had better be our plea as well, that we're not condemned or judged by men. God's judgment is life and death, but we know that His mercy endures forever. And mankind is not that kind. Mankind will condemn very, very quickly. Verse 10, Take, my brethren, the prophets who have spoken in the name of the Eternal, for an example of suffering, affliction, and of patience. 
He says, think back on the prophets. Now, James himself had become an apostle and a prophet. But he said, think back on the prophets of old and what they went through. Uh, let's go back to Hebrews and tie that in a little bit in Hebrews 11, because James says do that, and that's exactly where Paul went. Because he has chapter 11, which he talks here about the faithfulness of many, many people and what they went through. Uh, starts out there with Noah in verse 7. He was moved with fear. Now, he had a big project ahead of him, right? A hundred years of building a boat. <laughs> One floater. A hundred years. That's a long time to work on a boat. You know that? Or any other project. But he patiently went about it, did the work, finally got it built just in time, and then the earth was flooded. And Abraham, look at what he and Sarah went through. He was, he was told, go find a place that I've prepared. I'm not telling you where it is, go find it. And, and he had to leave his father's, mother's, relatives' homes and go look for a city whose foundation and builder and maker is God. And then what Sarah and Abraham went through in having a son, promised they'd have one, and then went years and years until both of them got so old that there was no possibility from a human physical standpoint of them having a child. She was past the age and he was past capacity. Couldn't happen. God says it is going to happen. Well, they kind of got a chuckle out of it, but once the initial reaction was over and she kind of got scolded, uh, they believed and they waited. And then it happened, just as God said. But that would be hard to wait and wait like that because he had been promised he'd, his progeny would be like the stars of heaven or the sands of the sea. And he couldn't even have one kid. How am I good? How's this going to happen, God? But he didn't give up. They're looking forward to a heavenly country, verse 16. He's prepared a city for that. And then he talks about Isaac and how Abraham had had this one son by miracle. And then years later, when the son's virtually grown or may have been grown, God says, go put him on an altar and sacrifice him like a lamb. Abraham didn't even hesitate at that point. He just saddled his ass and took Isaac and went and built an altar and put him on it and put branches there and ready to build a fire. Then Jacob blessed the, his, the sons of Joseph and the Israelites. He was dying. Now Joseph himself, it isn't mentioned here, but he would, he's got sitting, sat in prison for seven long years. That's a long time to sit in prison. And uh, no relief in sight. He's just there. He hadn't done anything. He was innocent. One of the few who've gone to prison who was innocent. Done nothing wrong. Fled from evil. And yet there he was. And God left him there for seven long years. Do you ever, when you start thinking of these stories, whose side was God on here? <laughs> really? 
Was he on Abraham's side, Sarah's side, Noah's side? Was he on Joseph's side? Hmm. Moses lived 40 years and basically in Pharaoh's court and then had to go out in the land of Midian and herd sheep for 40 years. Was God on Moses' side or on the Egyptian side? What about poor Job? Well, there's a good example. He lost his children. He lost his flocks and herds. He lost his health. He lost his home. You might as well say he lost his wife. She didn't die, but then she was all over him to curse God and die, stupid. That didn't didn't really help him either, you know. Who's if people had looked at that, his friends were out there trying to talk some sense into Job. And from their perspective, which side would they have thought God was on? And yet we know that God was on Job's side through the whole thing. He's the one that sick Satan on Job. And he says, You can go this far. Stop just short of killing him. You can get as close to killing him as you can, but don't do it. That was the only limit he had. And when you're sitting on a behind full of boils, and boils all over your body, you just as soon be dead. One boil is so painful you don't want to live sometimes. All over your body, no place to get comfortable. Whose side was God on? You know, everybody's like, is real quick to say, God's on my side. Well, are, are you obeying God? Are you serving God? Is your attitude godly? Well, maybe so. But sometimes God doesn't appear to be on the side of the most righteous. Rahab, she believed and saved the spies. God is going to have her in the kingdom of God. Then he goes on. He says, what about David and what he went through and Samuel and the prophets? And they, through faith, in verse 33, subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the violence of fire and the fiery furnace, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. They did those things, but they went through a lot to get there. Some were... Uh, stoned, some were sawed in asunder, probably from the crotch up like Isaiah apparently was. They went through an awful lot. Women received their dead raised to life again. Elijah raised up uh, the widow's son and so on. Uh, Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance. Well, like Isaiah and some of the others who were killed. Zechariah 1 says that here in the end time, at the time of the beginning of the gathering of the two witnesses and the end time works, were not to stone the prophets. They did it in the past, but he says, don't you do it in the end time. You'll get on the wrong side of God. Uh, but they always have. It's Israel's history, and it will happen again in this age. Uh, but they didn't accept deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. 
Then he says others had trials of cruel mockings. Jeremiah was mocked, derided, as was Elijah and Elisha. Uh, they had scourgings, stonings, and imprisonment. Uh, Jeremiah was put in prison. They were stoned, they were sawed asunder. I've already said some of those things, but they're here. Like Isaiah was sawed asunder. Were tempted. Uh, they were tempted with evil and sin, like anybody else, which is a difficulty. They were killed with the sword. Uh, the apostles in the New Testament were basically all uh, martyred, killed, except for John. And he was apparently put in boiling oil and survived that. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins. We worry about whether the air conditioner's on or, or the heat's on or, or if we have everything we need in our modern society that we're spoiled with. But some of the people in the past wandered around in whatever they could take off a goat or a sheep to try to keep themselves warm. And being destitute, not having anything, afflicted and tormented, You and I have really been put upon, haven't we? Right now we might be suffering a little anxiety because things haven't happened as fast as we want. We might be ridiculed or put down by people vocally. You know what? We haven't faced anything but a little pink toothbrush compared to what other people in, this, in the past have gone through. Yes, it's hard to endure... Uh, people talking against you. It's hard to endure attitudes. It's hard to endure waiting because we're impatient. We're spoiled. But those aren't big things compared to the things we're reading about here. That's, that's nothing compared to these things. Some of it's going to happen again. If we can't take a little spiritual and emotional stress and trauma, how are we going to face big trials? Of course, emotional and spiritual trauma and stress is stressing. It's hard. It's difficult. Um, so I'm not demeaning or diminishing that, but, but come on. Uh, we need to buck up and turn to God and come to have faith and trust in Him like these people did. Because we haven't gone through anywhere near what they've gone through yet of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts. That's not comfortable. They didn't have swamp coolers with them on their back as they wandered through the desert. Uh, and in mountains, and in dens and caves of the earth. We like a nice insulated home with cooling and heating and refrigerators. They lived in holes in the rock and caves, some of them. That's how they existed. Are we ready for that, spoiled Americans? <laughs> I, I don't know. It might be tough for us. And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise, God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. So as righteous, as faithful, as patient as they were, God hasn't let them in the kingdom of God yet. They're laying in their graves waiting for us. So, whose side is God on? He's on the side of all these people in Hebrews 11 
who went through all this were hated, despised, killed, tortured, imprisoned, you name it. He was on their side all the way through. If it's going too easy for you, is God on your side? He says, through much tribulation, enter the kingdom of God, and many are the afflictions of the righteous, for he will deliver them. Who will, who will save us from this body of sin and death? Only Emmanuel the Christ can. So, when James says, take the prophets and look to them, uh, all we got to do is go back to Hebrews 11 and there's the story. We haven't suffered anything yet by comparison. We may be old, we may be crippled, we may be half blind and half deaf and losing our minds and losing our health and our bodies close to death. Now, Abraham and Sarah were in the same position, right? They were in their 90s. I think he was, what was it, 99 when finally Isaac was born? So here we are on the, not just autumn, but a lot of us on the winter side of life. For all intents and purposes, our life's about over. But God says He can renew. He renewed Sarah and Abraham both, didn't He? After they were way past the time. So if we think He can't do that for us, He's done it in the past. And He said He will here in the end. He said He'll save us before the flesh fails before Him there in Isaiah. You believe that? You waiting for that? We need to look forward in faith to God's answers, not give up. Verse 11, Behold, we count them happy which endure. Endure what? Whose side was God on when Ezekiel was laying on his side for month after month after month, cooking his food overdone? Everybody around him thought God was had forsaken him. Everybody mocked and jeered and laughed at poor Ezekiel laying there cooking his food on dung. But God was on his side the whole time, wasn't he? We count them happy which endure. You have heard of the patience of Job. Well, we already discussed that. And have seen the purpose or the end of God. When Job had learned what he needed to learn, God removed the penalties and gave him more daughters and children and flocks and herds and everything that he'd ever had before. <clears throat> he was probably a pretty old man by that time, too. So, he had another batch of kids. Some of you might better watch out. By the time you're 99, you may, you may start a new family. <clears throat> He's very pitiful, or full of pity, and of tender mercy. Verse 12, but above all things, my brethren, swear not, neither by heaven, neither by the earth, neither by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, lest you fall into condemnation. He's already said earlier, don't make big plans apart from God. Be sure you always are thinking, I will do this or I will do that if it be according to God's will. So we can't swear we're going to do this or swear we're going to do that, just... Just be affirmative. Yes, I will do this. And no, I won't do that. And then live up to it. You say you'll do it, then do it. 
Is your word any good? Does it mean anything? Then he gives us some instruction. Verse 13, Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. If we have troubles, difficulties, we're afflicted by something, spiritual, mental, physical, whatever it might be, poverty, pray. <clears throat> that's, that's where to go. It's prayer to God. Is any merry? If you're happy, well then, sing psalms. Sing glory to God if you're happy. I think sometimes we depend too much on the music of the world instead of singing psalms to God. That's where our singing and joy needs to be. Not that it's always wrong to have some music, but there's not any being written that I know of anymore that's worth listening to. Uh, but psalms to God are always there. All right. Verse 14, Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Eternal. Now, I ran across somebody just yesterday that have a little box. It's about, oh, I don't know, probably eight inches cubed. And it has connections to the Internet. And they say that with the software connected to that box, it will analyze everything in your body, and it will set all the electrical connections right, and it will fix anything. Uh, in, there's no disease, no malady, no nothing. I showed pictures of a kid who had a skill saw and cut three fingers nearly off, and the doctor said, no, they got to go, and they hooked him up to this thing, and his fingers all healed, and the doctor couldn't believe it, so he got all these testimonies about how everything can be healed. And then the guy that was, he seemed like a normal guy, but then he told me sometimes our maladies and our afflictions go way back even into an afterlife, I mean a, a pre-life, excuse me, that we're all reincarnated, and that he had one case of somebody that couldn't couldn't heal, so uh, he plugged in the guy's uh, information, and it turned out that he had been a Chinese in 1392, and his parents had misused him and abused him, and that was the reason he had trouble in this life. And after they discovered that, then he was healed. And about then, I checked out. <laughs> uh, I, th I thought of this scripture, in fact. <laughs> what does God tell me to do? Go find a box hooked to a computer and it'll fix everything wrong with me. No, he says, is any sick among you, let him call the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the eternal. So that's what we're to do. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the eternal shall raise him up. You know, God was smarter than a box hooked to a a computer long before boxes and computers were made. And he's the one that designed our bodies, and he knows all the electromagnetic connections, and he knows all about the human system. Designed it, put it together, breathed life into it, and promised us eternal life in the kingdom of God if we would obey him. And we haven't, and we've got ourselves in a polluted world, an upside-down world, 
and we are sick and afflicted with all kinds of physical and mental and spiritual uh, maladies. But the place we are to turn is to God. That's where we're to get the help that we need. And many of you and I have seen some pretty miraculous healings from God in our lives with ourselves and our children. And God can and does. Now, does He always? Well, sometimes we have to suffer and be afflicted and mourn. And He'll put us through things. God didn't heal Job immediately, did He? Job probably was in worse shape physically than any human being has ever been up until Christ before his death with all those boils. And he just sat there in absolute pain and abject misery while his friends yammered on him, and God ignored it. But then, when Job's attitude changed and he blessed his friends and got rid of the grudge and the self-righteousness that he had, God healed him. So we have to look to God in faith and in trust. You've got to believe it. And he says that here. He says at the beginning of this book that a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways, and if he wavers, he's like the waves of the sea, driven with the wind. And it says, let not that man think he'll receive anything of the eternal. So we have to trust God in faith. We have to believe in him. We have to believe it's going to happen. If we don't believe it's going to happen, it ain't going to happen. That's what he's saying. If we're sick, the process is to go to the elders. We can't anoint ourselves. I've heard people say, well, I can anoint. I'm a member of the church, and I'm an apostle since I'm in the church. No, you're not, and you're not an elder, and you can't anoint. That's something that God has the oversight of. Now, why is it that people say, well, the Ecclesia is the body of Christ, it's all the members? There's nothing wrong with that statement, it's true. We're all part of the called out ones. But God placed a ministry as the head of the called out ones under Christ. First apostles, then prophets, then evangelists, pastors, and teachers, and so on. And he says, don't many be that. So, we aren't all that, are we? The irony of that all is that since apostles are the highest office, and people say, well, apostle just means one cent, we're all apostles. Well, if everybody's an apostle, where are you going to find a prophet? There's no room for them. If everybody's an apostle, where are you going to find an evangelist? Or a pastor? Or a teacher? Or an elder? Can't be any, because everybody's an apostle. That's baloney. God set the ministry as the head of the body. Now, that doesn't uh, contradict Christ being the head spiritually overall, the, the whole body, including those he's put physically in charge on the earth. God does not rule from the bottom up. Never has, never will. So when he says, call the elders and have them anoint you, Everybody's not an elder. Everybody's not an apostle. Just those whom God has caused to be ordained. Paul told Timothy to ordain elders. So, to be an elder, you have to be ordained by someone that God already has put in a position of leadership through ordination. 
You can't anoint or ordain yourself. Neither can you. You're being presumptuous if you anoint your child and you're not an elder. And that's the same as witchcraft, which is the same as Satanism. Taking something on yourself that is not yours. That's what Satan tried to do. That was his attitude. He tried to take on the kingdom of God and put God down. And anything that we try to do below that is still the same attitude. So he says then, the, faith, the prayer of faith shall save the sick. And the Lord shall raise him up. And if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Now, sin and pain and sickness are tied together with sin. Uh, the Pharisees even recognized that. Who, who sinned? This man or his father or who? So that he's afflicted. Because sin leads to physical affliction. Just like it does spiritual affliction. Now, it's not always our sin. It could have been very, very poor diet our parents ate. Uh, it could have been the pollutions that the world has made on the earth that have caused all kinds of sickness and illness that really wasn't of our own making. So whether it is of our making or not, we still go to God. If there are sins of ours that need forgiven, He will forgive them. If they weren't our sins, He can heal us anyway. But the point is, you have to believe God. You have to believe He can and will. That's why Abraham and Sarah got in a little bit of trouble by chuckling uh, when he said, this is the way it's going to be. Said, well, wait a minute now, you know. Uh, you're talking about the impossible here. That's right. Impossible except through God. Now, we might chuckle a little when God says, I'm going to, in the end time, the desert's going to bloom as a rose, and I'm going to give you the legs of deer, and I'm going to restore you so that you can finish my work. And we say, how could we be restored? We're already old. We can't do anything. That's just the point. We are too old to do anything as a whole. It's going to be God's doing. And He can raise up those who are afflicted or old or crippled or whatever and make them capable of doing His work. If He can raise up a stone, He can raise us up. Confess your faults one to another. Now, that's not talking about our spiritual sins. He's talking here about physical illnesses primarily. Um, let people know, I, I need your prayers. I need your faith to go with my faith so that we might have an answer from God here. Pray for one another that you may be healed. So he's speaking still here in the context of healing physically. Now, it could include spiritual troubles and illnesses. I mean, there are times that we can say to somebody, you know, I'm really having a trial right now. I'd appreciate your prayers. Uh, we don't have to always specify, but we can share as much as we want to share with somebody uh, of our spiritual needs. Now, when he says confess and forsake, he doesn't mean confess all of our spiritual sins to God. I mean to man, but to God. Confess them to God, who can forgive, and forsake them. Move on. Otherwise, we'd have a confessional booth here on the property, like the Catholics do. No, that's not what God wants us to do. He wants us to get on our knees 
and pray to Him about our sins and our lacks and our failings. We don't have to do that with one another, but when you have a physical illness, sometimes it's nice to have others praying along with you that you be healed. So he says, confess those problems or those faults to each other and pray one for another to be healed. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. God says, if you will be righteous and you will trust me, I listen to that. It avails much. It's, it's, it, it works with me, God says. To this man will I look, to him that is of a contrite, noble spirit. So if we are faithful and we believe without wavering, and you've got to work on that one. When we're anointed, we need to believe and trust that God is going to heal us. If we say, well, I don't know, maybe we'll, maybe we won't. Uh, that's not trusting and believing. That's sort of coppering your bets. And I've seen a lot of people go to God, be anointed, and then they begin to take other uh, remedies for what's wrong with them than God. And I think sometimes that's an affront to God, uh, because if you take it to the highest power in the universe, and then you say, well, he didn't heal me, and it's been a week, uh, I think I better go and see if they need to give me a heart transplant, <laughs> you know, or some such thing. Uh, no. If you trust in the doctors, if you trust in the world, go to the world. But if you trust in God, then trust in God. That's what He expects. That's what He wants. And He'll look to you if you do that. But what difference does it make, really? I would rather die trusting God than I had to live another six or months or two years because they cut a tumor out of me and I, I buy a little time from that tumor. Big deal. The only thing this life is about is eternal life. That's all it's about. It's not about how long we live on this earth. There are people who have died 25, 30, 35, 40 years of age who are going to be in the kingdom of God. Their life may have been cut short on this earth, they didn't live a full life. So what? They're going to live eternally. So do I need to go buy another six months or two years maybe? I don't think so. And if I've observed those who went through chemo or heart transplants or all kinds of stuff, I've basically seen misery, physical trouble and maladies and drug dependence and all kinds of things that result from that. And you might gain six months or a year or two or three. But they're not going to be fun years, I'll guarantee you that. Because when they take those major steps at trying to keep you alive, uh, there's a penalty that goes with that. All kinds of pain and drugs and a life spent going back and forth to, to uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Kidney failure to... Uh, uh, dialysis. That's not a fun life. It, dialysis just drains you, your energy, your your strength. And about the time you finally get past that dialysis, you got to go back and do it again. Well, that's okay if you want to do it that way. But it's not an easy life. It's hard. Let us trust God in faith for our healing. And uh, 
You know, it really doesn't matter whether you live 40 or 95 years on this earth. Will you be in the kingdom of God? That's the only thing that really matters in the long run. I belong to God. My life is His. If He wants to end mine, He can do it in one heartbeat. If He wants me to go on, He can heal me. But I am devoted and dedicated and committed to Him. And we have to make our choices based on where we are with Him and our spiritual dedication. But God gives us the formula here for life and for healing if we can have that faith in God and that trust. And He tries our faith sometimes, doesn't He? I mean, didn't Hebrews 11 show an awful lot of trying of faith to see if it was true and strong and would last and endure and be patient? Sometimes years and years and years people waited for an answer from God. I'll bet Joseph, when he was in prison, prayed every day for seven years for deliverance. And then it came. But he was faithful all the way through. And then he was delivered. Elijah, he uses for an example here, was a man subject to like passions as we are. So he recognized that Elijah had the same difficulties that James himself had and that you and I have. Now, how did he know that? Well, Elijah showed great faith and trust in God when he destroyed and then ultimately killed the prophets of Baal. He was there as a very powerful, strong man trusting in God and even taunted the priests of Baal. And then God answered him, and then Elijah stood up and killed them all. So he showed great strength and faith there, didn't he? But then what happens? Jezebel says, I'm going to kill you, Elijah. And man, he ran for the desert. <laughs> I'm out of here. I can stand before 400 priests of Baal, but that woman Jezebel, she scares me. So he was subject to fear, uh, to distrust, to doubt, uh, just like we are. And uh, he sat out there all by himself, and, oh, woe is me, woe is me. And then the ravens came and started poking food in his mouth, and, and the, the brook gave water. Well, it was time of drought because Elijah had said, let there not be rain. And then the brook dried up. <laughs> then he prayed. Well, he goes on to explain that. He had the same passions, the same fears, same worries, same lack of faith at times that we do. And he prayed earnestly that it not rain, and it rained not on the space of the earth on the earth by the space of three years and six months. Pretty long time. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. So, in the long run, Elijah trusted God. But he had his moments, just like we have our moments. And we have to overcome those and move forward in faith. Those, those people in Hebrews 11 were tried over and over and over again. And some even died waiting. But they'll be in the kingdom of God, and that's all that matters. Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth, and one change him, convert him, bring him around. Let him know that he which converts the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. 
So helping others overcome their difficulties, their trials, their lack of faith or, or uh, heretical doctrine or whatever, if there's any way we can help change them from that, turn them back to God, then that goes on our ledger of treasure in heaven. And we can save our own selves from death as well as helping someone else be part of the kingdom of God. So it takes faith to do these things. It takes patience and waiting for God, not condemning one another, but doing all we can to pray for our enemies and help those who despitefully use us and persecute us and always be forgiving and merciful, not condemning and judgmental, and try to help. And if we can help, and God looks to that as good for us. So let's trust God with our lives, commit ourselves totally, completely to Him, and know that we'll be in the kingdom of God if we so do, even if we're killed by people on this earth. We know that's going to happen here in the end time. God says that they will turn on us, they'll kill us, thinking they do God a service. And it says of the two witnesses, after all they go through, they're going to be murdered in the streets of Jerusalem. So nothing's changed. We still face the same uh, problems, the same difficulties that Elijah and all these others faced. We just need to use them as an example and look to the prophets, as James says, and trust God that everything will turn out right in the end.